thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Great to see each of you here this morning. Great to be joined by those of you online. We're really privileged that you would give us this hour of your attention and time. We're continuing our series this morning, AD 30, which is basically a chronological walk through the life of Christ. And uh, today we're going to talk about why grace works. You know, toys have uh, come a long ways over the last few generations. If you ask your parents, if you really want to find an interesting answer to a question, especially if you're a little older, ask your parents what they played with as kids, it's sort of depressing. You know, a rope, uh, you know, a rope made out of hemp, but they didn't know what hemp, anyway, never mind. You know, sticks, cardboard boxes, and a tire swing, you know, and they'll tell you, and we loved it, you know, and you're thinking, how did you survive? How sad. But my dad actually lived one generation after the invention of fire and the wheel. And his dad, you know, for entertainment, his dad would walk around looking for mammoth tusks at the edge of the glaciers. So when you go back a couple of generations, they didn't have what we experience at Christmas. By the time my generation was celebrating Christmas, Ice Age Toys was no longer in business. That was the name of the company back then. And we had advanced. There were no Apple products at the time. Apple products, when I grew up, were cider and sauce. There were no cell phones, laptops, or computers uh, in our home. But there was an invention that took place just two years before I was born. And this, this was a big deal. It was a big toy on the toy scene. There was a French dude named... Andrew, now it looks like Casagnes, but I'm trying to really work on French uh, names here. I actually, you know, told Daniel I'd be working on this. So Andrew Casagnes, which I'm assuming would be like Andrew Casson or something like that. Or if you, like you doubt a French name and it starts with C, Andrew Croissant or something, you know. You just throw Croissant at it, because it's the word we know how to say in French. Is, Is that okay, Daniel? All right, good. So Andrew Croissant invented a plastic device just before I was born with a screen. So it was a plastic device with a screen. And the device actually was filled with aluminum powder. And I don't know if aluminum powder is dangerous. We're probably all full of aluminum powder. Those of us who played with this toy, we're probably all dying of aluminum powder poisoning, but that's another issue. So this little toy, this plastic toy with a screen filled with aluminum powder had two little knobs, and you would control a stylus or sort of like a pencil from the backside of the screen. And so you could draw pictures with these two little knobs as it would move this pencil around behind the screen and scratch off this aluminum powder from the back of the screen. This was a huge step in toy evolution. It was actually one of the top 100 toys of the last century. They sold over 100 million of these little toys. And some of you know what it is. It is an an Etch-A-Sketch. Do they still sell them? They do. Okay. You have one, Aaron. All right. So they still sell Etch-A-Sketches. It was a toy miracle. The beautiful thing about an Etch-A-Sketch 
is its forgiving nature. If you make a mistake, you literally shake the toy for seconds and the history of that mistake is gone forever. The aluminum powder recoats the back of the screen. The mistake is covered. There's no record of it. And you start over fresh. That's the beauty of an extra sketch. There's no eraser. It's literally shake and you start over. And there's no record of poor art designs or mistakes in the past. Don't you wish we could do that with our life choices? Wouldn't it be great if it was really that simple? That we just can take maybe a few years of our lives, a few habits, and just shake it and start over as if it never happens and it didn't leave a mark. I wish I could do that. I'd like to take out ages 12 to 28. Actually, looking at them more closely, I'd like to take out 5 to 55. That's my whole life. But we can't. We can't. We accumulate our bad sketches. And, and we carry them in our hearts. We carry them in our minds. We actually carry some of them in our bodies. And, and these sketches hold us back. And they can't really be erased. And they actually can cripple us. They can sort of cripple our futures because they're always a part of the fabric of our lives. We are not an Etch-a-Sketch, spiritually. But forgiveness and grace changes that. It's sort of a, a divine judicial Etch-a-Sketch from God, where when we are justified by faith, the Bible says the word justified means that we are declared righteous. Based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are declared righteous. It's as if we've never sinned. Not only it's as if we've never sinned, Christ's righteousness is put on our account. When we come to faith in Jesus, God as a judge takes the righteous standing of Christ, puts it on your sort of legal account in heaven, and you are etched sketched. It's as if it doesn't exist. The slate is wiped clean. And it's like we really are starting all over again. But that sounds a little too easy for some of us. And actually the church of Jesus Christ has always worried about whether that's really good. Is it really good that God gives us an absolute clean slate? In fact, if you share the gospel with somebody, it's very likely they'll say, well, that actually sounds too easy. That, that's actually concerning. And they're not the first people to say that because grace has sort of a potential unintended consequence. If, if God will just wipe the slate clean and then we go and confess afterwards what we do wrong, and he wipes the slate clean again. I mean, isn't grace too easy? Aren't we just going to sort of maybe sin on purpose and just assume, hey, I can wipe the slate clean, no problem. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 6, verse 1. He says, after talking about grace and justification, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? I mean, why not just live it up? Because the more God pours out his grace, the more it makes God look good. So he might not even mind if we live it up and just confess it later. See, Paul wrote about this. Jesus talks about it. Grace is a risk. If we can get the soul cleansed without any real effort, what keeps us from just abusing grace? If I can do whatever I want, confess it, get a clean soul, etch a sketch, why not do it? 
Jesus actually has the answer to that in today's passage. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. It should be on, I believe, page 51 in the Bibles near you. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Pretty awkward. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman or person this woman is who's touching him and that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. Now a denarii was about a day's wages, so about a year and a half's wages, and the other 50, or almost two months. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to look at three simple points from this passage and then a few applications to our lives. First, and this is the main point of the passage, this is the point Jesus is making if you're looking for authorial intent, which you should always be looking for in a passage of Scripture, what's the author's primary point? This is it. Our natural level of love and devotion to God is proportional to the level of forgiveness and grace we've received. That's what Jesus is trying to point out to this Pharisee here. It's the main point. Now there's more going on here. We're going to talk about some of those other things, but this captures what Jesus is really trying to get across to Simon and to the readers here. When we receive grace, we're intended to respond with love and devotion. It's the reason grace is not a gamble from God's perspective. Grace seems like a gamble uh, to me, But from God's perspective, he's counting on the fact that when he forgives us, he extends undeserved, incredible grace and forgiveness. He believes he's going to get a response. Let me illustrate. When Shannon Etheridge was just 16 years old, an act of forgiveness and love and grace changed her life forever. She was driving to high school one day, and she ran over a woman named Marjorie Jarsfar, A woman who was riding her bike along a country road, she didn't see her, she ran her over. Marjorie died. And Etheridge, 
who was found completely at fault by authorities, was consumed by guilt. She's this high school girl. She's killed this mature woman, and she contemplated suicide. She's thinking, my life can never be the same. But she never took her life because of the healing response of one man, Gary, Marjorie's husband, who extended her grace. Gary forgave this 16-year-old and asked the attorney to drop all charges against her. The attorney would have been the prosecutor. He's getting involved in the case, and he's saying, don't charge this young woman. It'll wreck her life, saving her from a guilty verdict. Instead, he asked that the young woman continue on in a godly or in the godly footsteps that his wife had taken. He said to her, you can't let this ruin your life. Gary told her that more than 20 years ago. God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I'm passing my wife's legacy on to you. That act of grace changed that high school girl's life. It showed her the amazing love of God, and today that high school girl is a grown woman, and Etheridge is the best-selling author of Every Girl's Battle, Every Woman's Battle, and her recent book, Completely His, Loving Jesus Without Limits which helps women overcome guilt-ridden, wounded lives. See, Gary just unleashed grace on this young woman. And it was life-changing. It was disruptive. It was future-altering grace because she knew she was doomed without it. Now, theoretically, after Gary said that to her, you, you know and I know, she could have responded differently. She could have just listened to him and acted like she was going to you know, be a different woman and grow up and live in Marjorie's footsteps. And then privately, she could have just said, got away with that one. Whew. Wow. Distracted driving's not that big of a deal after all. It was just an accident anyway. Could happen to anyone. I should have never been convicted. But you know those, those comments sound ridiculous. Because she knows she didn't deserve it. She knows she was at fault. She knew that wasn't the case. She had messed up. She had taken another life. She knew she deserved serious consequences. Instead, it was etcher sketched by grace. The consequences were completely erased. And when that happens to us, it moves us and it changes our lives. Jesus' illustration, he said a banker had a couple of client meetings on a weekday afternoon. One of them owed about uh, two months' wages, the other one about a year and a half's worth of wages. Both were forgiven. There was a pandemic. There was easy money from the government and everywhere else. Everything's forgiven. Which one's going to love him more? Well, the one with the greater debt. We know that's true. Why? But why? I want to dive a little deeper into the hearts of the two people that Jesus is interacting with in this story and in this actual situation. First, the spiritual assumptions of those who know they need grace and forgiveness. So this is where this woman is coming from. My moral debt is great. Now, just FYI, everyone assumes this woman is a prostitute. And I'll give you a line a little later about how this is typically interpreted in other versions because the version in front of you mutes it a little bit. 
Her moral debt was great. She cannot pay it off. Jesus can paid for it on the cross, and he did. Therefore, I owe my life. That's where she's coming from. Now, she's having that perspective as Jesus has influenced her. He hasn't died and risen again yet, but I'm looking at this from a Christian perspective. That's her perspective. So Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to his home. During nice weather in that culture, outdoor meals were very common, and homes were usually quite small. If you were very wealthy, you might have a bigger home that would include, you might not want to be wealthy in that culture because your bigger home would include your in-laws, you know, your parents, maybe your brother and his family, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you could have a, a household that might have 40 or 50 people in it, but most people weren't like that. This Pharisee may have been. But for the wealthy, they might have a, a courtyard with sort of homes around it, and it seems like that is the case here. So in this courtyard, where you might have a water source and fire as you went into the evening, if you had a famous rabbi come to your home, or, or a politician, or anybody important that you would want others to hear, outsiders were welcome. So outsiders would have been welcomed into this circumstance. This famous rabbi is coming to speak at Simon's house. The poor would come, and they would be given leftovers from the feast. And the woman who comes here, we don't have her name, but she's presented as a prostitute. In fact, if you look at other versions, it will say this. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Not a woman from that town who's a sinner, but a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. So I think... That doesn't leave a lot to the imagination. And when she's with Jesus, she does something that women normally didn't do in that culture. When a woman who in Jewish culture got married, at that point, according to historians, they would, on your wedding day, you would bind your hair. Your hair would always be up after that. And when you're married, you would never go out with your hair unbound and down in public again. So you could typically tell who's married based on that cultural issue. So she's here with Jesus, and her hair is unbound, and she's literally wiping Jesus' feet with it. But I just want you to step back for a second and think of her shame in that culture. You know, this is going on in a Jewish city. This is a group of people who have the Old Testament, and they take it pretty seriously. She's at Simon's house. He's a Pharisee. He takes it very seriously. And through a variety of events in her life, she's ended up in this situation where she's a prostitute in the most conservative religious culture on the planet. Think Amish. Oh, nobody's Amish here today because that wasn't meant to be an insult. But, but think about that. She's a prostitute in the most conservative culture around. Now, she's been on the edge of the crowds following Jesus for sure for some time because she's expressing to him how much he's already changing her life. The changes are already happening in her life and probably in her behavior, and so she's sensing that she's a different person. And so this, hers, was an act of devotion and love for what was already at least a partial new reality for her. So Jesus is reclining on a low couch, which was the way people ate back then. So when your kids say, hey, I want to eat on the couch, they're actually just following Jesus' footsteps. It's biblical. You can't argue with them. Can't say, well, what if you get food on it? Well, what did Jesus do when he got food on the couch? I mean, it's legitimate. So they would eat reclined on a low couch, which helps you understand what she's doing there. She's not down on the ground. He's on a couch. She's at the foot of the couch there. And she's weeping at his feet. 
And evidently, most women in that culture would wear almost like jewelry, a little vial of perfume, quite expensive, a little alabaster jar tied around their neck, and she broke this, and she, she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her unbound hair. It looked a little scandalous to Simon, but it was sincere. Grace is scandalous. This was scandalous. Why should she get forgiveness? Why should she get forgiveness after living the way she's lived? That's what Simon would think. Because he's been working his tail off to keep God's commandments. Why should she get this forgiveness and grace from this rabbi? She even knows she doesn't deserve it. In fact, everyone knows she doesn't deserve it because everyone knows what she does for a living. But you see, that's why she loves Jesus. Because he extends that kind of grace and forgiveness. And that's how it gets its desired result because the greatly forgiven tend to not forget about it quickly. The greatly changed remember what they used to be like and they don't get over it. That's the point. Jesus knows this. Who's going to be changed? Who's going to love me more after the fact? Her. See, grace sets aside the merit system. Grace recognizes I'll never earn it. I've done too many bad things. I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get God's favor if it's up to me. But if it's a gift from him, that changes everything. Paul, the apostle, never got over it. In fact, Paul had quite a, a storied background. Now, he was very religious, but he was religious and he was into persecution. And the people he persecuted were people just like you and me. Like house to house, drag them out in the streets kind of persecution, all right? Think certain governments around the world. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing before he met Jesus. And Jesus said, you got to stop this, man. A little bit of a, it's there. It's in the text. you got to stop this. And Paul was radically transformed. But after that, do you know how Paul described himself? 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles. Actually, he was the greatest of the apostles. He never saw himself that way because he was a murderer. He called himself in 1 Timothy the chief of sinners. He wasn't the chief of sinners, but he never forgot that he killed a lot of Christians before he got on their team. Ephesians 3, he says, I'm, the less, I'm less than the least of all of God's people. See, he never got over it. That he had been extended radical forgiveness and grace. And according to Jesus, that's a normal response to grace. When you have some history, the salvation language that we used is that people are saved. That's the word. It means rescued. And 2,000 years ago, this woman who recognized that her moral debt was great, she couldn't pay it off. A woman with a lot of sexual history a woman shunned in her culture, a woman who'd given up hope of a normal life, a family, another chance, that woman was rescued, and her response was tears of love, sacrifice, breaking this expensive perfume, being willing to love on Jesus in a way that was uncomfortable for many around her, unbound hair, unashamed to show her love, and a life of devotion to Jesus. See, that's how grace is supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to work in our lives, too. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. 
Sometimes it doesn't work that way because we don't have the perspective of that woman. We often have the perspective of Simon the Pharisee. And here's, here's, here are his spiritual assumptions by those who are a little bit on the merit or work system. And, and let me, I want to be frank with you. You can be a Christian and still kind of think this way a little bit. So Jesus here isn't just saying this person's saved, this person isn't. We, we can know Jesus and still think this way a little bit. It's bad thinking, but we can do it. You know, I don't really need saving. Well, you can't think that, but you might not think you needed it much. You know, you might have been a really, really good person before you met Jesus. It's like, you know, well, I had Jesus to my already almost perfect life. Jesus should stay further away from sin and sinners. In fact, you know what's funny about this? I grew up in one of those really, really conservative cultures. We were more conservative than God. My mom is in heaven right now, and she's uncomfortable with certain things going on up there. I'm confident of it, especially the music. Mom? I hope she can't see. But I remember growing up in that culture, you know there are certain Bible passages that they just don't talk about in sermons when you grow up in that culture because they don't know what to do with them. Because Jesus actually does things they're not comfortable with. And so sometimes even as religious people and even as Christ followers, we can sort of still have those perspectives about Jesus. And, and we sort of think we were never that bad in the first place. And I'm the kind of person that God should be happy with. I mean, it didn't take much for Jesus to save me because I really was pretty good. He's kind of lucky to have us. I mean, that's, some of us kind of think like that. That would have been Simon's view. Simon invites Jesus into his home. But Simon was far from God in his heart. Now, as a Pharisee, I mean, my kids joke with me, and this is, now, if you homeschool, I love you, and I have no issues with it, and I might do it if we were raising kids today, but my kids always say I was homeschooled in a church basement because I was in a Christian school, like, right when Christian school started. So the government had enacted some laws that, that were sort of hostile to faith, and churches began starting schools to pull their kids out of the public schools, and I was in one of those early, early Christian schools. I mean, but... Memorized scripture, I mean, it was, I don't know if it was in that era before homeschools and private schools had a lot better educational systems. I don't know if I got a great education, but my parents were trying to protect me from the world around me. Pharisees experienced that in Jewish culture. As a Pharisee, he would have been like in synagogue school since he was little, and he loved God's word. He loved the Old Testament traditions, and they believed in, in the Old Testament and God's laws and expectations. And then the scribes, the legal experts, would have taken all of God's rules and, and added commentary to them, like, if you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, we'll tell you all of the applications of that. And there would literally be hundreds, thousands of applications to each of God's commands. And the scribes kept track of them and the Pharisees memorized them. Simon was one of those guys. Both the oral tradition and the written tradition, he was trying to keep it all. It's like he had three Bibles and he kept them all. This led to a man who was an expert in God's word. He knew his Old Testament better than any of us, including me. Doesn't matter if you've gone to college and seminary, I guarantee you he knew it better than any of us will probably memorized books of the Old Testament. But as a result of that, and as a result of all of this rule-keeping, he was self-righteous. He didn't have a sense of his need for grace. He thought God was pretty lucky to have him. So there was no appreciation for what Jesus was bringing into this world. In fact, he saw Jesus as somewhat scandalous by exactly what he was observing in his outside courtyard. 
Because Jesus should know better, because he's on the merit system, he's a rule keeper, Jesus should know better than to be with a woman like this that will taint his reputation. So Simon's not a recipient of grace. He's no lover of God. He's kind of a lover of himself. Jesus shows up at his home. He still wants to understand Jesus. Jesus is popular. The Pharisees were sort of the, you know, the orthodoxy police, so he's checking Jesus out, making sure that Jesus isn't doing anything too scandalous. And he probably does want to hear what he has to say. But he didn't give him a normal reception because a normal reception, I'm really glad we're not in um, New Testament Jewish culture because there really would be a welcome kiss. I mean, they really did do that. And there really would be, you would like wash the person's feet. They had semi-sandaled feet, so you would pour water on their feet. That would be normal. And see, some of what this woman did was not as far out as you'd think. You would put oil or perfume on the person's hair because they kind of were sweaty and bathing was not as often back then as it is today. And so you would kind of try to freshen things up a little bit. He provided none of these. And those were the things that she did in spades. But he did watch Jesus' interaction with this prostitute. And in his self-righteous attitude, I mean, that was on full display. This is what he's thinking. And the Bible says he's saying these things to himself, which is interesting. you, you got to understand there's a little bit of sort of a textual nuance going here. He says to himself, a prophet would know who she is. A prophet would know what kind of woman she is, this woman who's touching him. He says this to himself, Jesus reads his mind and tells the story. Like a prophet would know what this woman is like, Jesus reads his mind like a prophet could. And that's when Jesus tells the story. A story that, you know, is removed by 2,000 years from our cultures and we see it. But maybe if Jesus were here today, he would tell the story a little bit more like this. A young girl is approached in the mall by a young man who tells her, you know, you're beautiful. Have you, have you ever considered modeling? And he invites her to a photo shoot. She's having problems at home and she doesn't really feel the need to tell her parents. He seems like a trustworthy individual. He talks about his experience in the modeling industry and how he's always looking for new talent. And she gets to the photo shoot. And it's not really what she's expecting. Drugs are slipped into a drink that she's given. And in a matter of days, she's been trafficked. And she's exported. And she's, drugs have been put in her that she didn't want, but now she's a heroin addict. And once that happens, that's all she thinks about. And she's handed off from one man to another. And over a period of a very short time, she has lost everything that she used to be. And most importantly, hope. For years, she's enslaved in this situation until she deteriorates into a shell of her former self. And she's diseased and depressed, and with the drugs and the abuse, she probably won't be alive in a matter of months. And somehow, 
She comes into contact with a Christian ministry that's trying to liberate and rescue women just like her. And thank God, by some chance, a police raid allows her a chance to break the cycle. Now, even when she gets out on bail, the easiest place to go, no matter what her background is, because now she's a heroin addict, the easiest place to do is to go exactly back where she came from because she wants the drugs and to go back into the same lifestyle because it's the fastest way to get them. It isn't who she used to be, but it's who she is now. But after the police raid, she comes in contact again with these Christians who, who went to her arraignment, and they told her, don't worry about anything. We have a place for you to stay. You don't need money. We'll clothe you. We'll feed you. We'll clean you up. We'll get you off the drugs. We love you, and God loves you. They gave her hope. Long ago, she had given up any hope that she could have a normal life. But she even fell in love with a good Christian young man who was able to etch a sketch her past and said, it doesn't matter. I know who you are. I know your heart. And she was transformed. Life was given back to her. She received grace in a way she never dreamt she could. And at the same time, the son in the family that took her in came to faith as well. He, was, he grew up in a, in a devout Christian home. He'd always been a good kid. He was a rule keeper. I mean, he was like, you know, the eldest son in the story of the prodigal son. He was responsible. He was a rule keeper. He knew his Bible. He memorized all. He was winning Awana Awards, and that's a big deal. I got the Timothy Award, just saying. <laughs> he knew Jesus was God, and he knew the next step in his life was to follow God. But it was mostly head, not a lot of heart. Not because he didn't have any heart for God. It's just his experience. He'd never wandered far from anything. And they were both baptized in the same church on the same day. And Jesus would say, who's more likely to love God until their dying breath out of those two? The one with the greater debt, probably that girl who was basically kidnapped and enslaved. I don't think she'll ever Question, God, after that, she's his. I want to close with a few apps. First, grace only works if there remains two concepts, sin and somebody with the authority to forgive it. Now, I'm going off text a little bit here, and this wouldn't have been an application in Simon's era, but it's an application in our era for some sad reasons. The last part of this passage ends with this issue of who is this that, you know, is exercising the authority to forgive? And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because even though we have this God who wants to shower grace on us, churches all over Western culture are racing to fit into the world's culture right now. I mean, they're racing and they're in a race with each other to get there. And the world's culture right now is basically unraveling the whole concept of personal sin, especially in the area of sexual ethics. 
So if we start unraveling that and we start reframing Jesus into a different kind of Jesus, not a Jesus who saves, but open Jesus, woke Jesus. If we start reframing Jesus into somebody that he really isn't, we've destroyed the concept of sin and the need for a savior and the character of the savior also. Now, 50 years ago, I would never say this in a sermon because you wouldn't need to. But today, it's a problem in the church. Because woke Jesus doesn't have a problem with what anyone does. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And I would love to be popular. I really like it when people like me. Just, we can't tear this up to get there. Grace only works if we maintain the concept of sin and that sin brings brokenness and we need a savior to be redeemed and changed. Which means we need to keep sin intact and God intact. Second, what does my level of love for God indicate about my sense of need for grace? Do we passionately love God because we recognize how much he's given to us? Or are we more like Simon? Well, you know, I was not really a big deal for God to save me. It wasn't a big step for him. You know, for some of us who maybe grew up in the church, we might actually be a little bit more like Simon than we think. I fear I am at times. And one of the things that I wonder about myself is not like what God saved me from, because I was saved at six, even though I've done some things in my life I'm pretty ashamed of. But what I think about is, what would I have become if I would have never known God? That's a little scarier for me. Probably not a really good dude. At all. What does my level of love for God indicate about my sense of need? Now, nobody is saying, and if you're a parent here and you're raising your kids, you know, nobody's saying, I want your kids to take a walk on the wild side so they appreciate God's grace more. That's not the point. But the passage still exists. That sometimes when we've walked further away from God, we appreciate more his grace. And third, have I accepted the generous forgiveness and grace of God? Maybe you're hearing you saying, I, just, I didn't know God would at you sketch my, my background. I'm not saying you're the prostitute in the New Testament story, but you could be. But maybe you've just got a lot of marks in your life that you'd like to erase and you've never known how to erase them. And I'm telling you that grace does that. That grace and forgiveness puts you in a position where God will take your sin, your mistakes, put them on the cross on Jesus where he paid for our sins and take the righteousness of Christ, which means his ethical perfection, and put it on your account in heaven, and God will view you as righteous and perfect and holy, even though you're not. God as a judge does that for us. When we come and accept what Jesus did for us. And if you've never done that, I just want to make sure you know what that looks like. And so I just want to put a prayer on the screen. If you've never done that, I would encourage you in your heart of hearts, you can do that today. Would you just pray through this prayer silently as I pray it out loud? Dear Lord, thank you for your love for people who make mistakes, who wander from the standards that you set 
for all of us. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins and rose again from the grave. And I need your forgiveness and grace. And in return, I will follow you and love you. Come into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for this story. A story that Luke recorded, but not just a story. This isn't a story Jesus told. It's a story that happened that Luke records. And Jesus feels the same way today. I pray that we would be people who recognize, no matter what we've done or not done in the past, that your grace is incredible to all of us. Whether it has saved us from things that we should have never done or whether it has kept us from things we otherwise would have become, your grace is incredible. Your forgiveness is incredible where you offer this etch-a-sketched spiritual situation where it's all in the past, it's all covered by the cross. I pray that your grace would work, that it would have its desired effect in each one of us, that we would love you in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.